I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You're listening to a special bonus episode. We had an incredible bunch of conversations last year. They were so good. I was thinking that there were some of these, these conversations, they were all great, but there were some of these conversations that really stuck with me. Ones that I was thinking about days and even weeks after they happened, which is pretty amazing. Again, all the conversations were great, but what I did was I went back and listened to those segments of the conversations that really stood out and stuck with me and made me think deeply and that sort of thing. So here's what this is. This is kind of a greatest hits episode of conversations in season two that I found really meaningful. And there's three of them. So narrowed it down to just the top three ones that really shaped me and provoked me to deeper thinking. And there's going to be one from uh, William Paul Young and one from A.J. Swoboda, and one from Natasha Sistrunk-Robinson. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say a little bit about the, the actual excerpt that I've chosen. Then we'll play the, the excerpt so you can listen to that. And then I'm going to come back with some follow-up thoughts. Talk a little bit about why I was impacted and, uh, and, and, and what it did for, for me and my own thinking, how it helped me think a thought from above and really challenge me. So. Without any further ado, here we go. Our first excerpt is from William Paul Young. It was a great interview, but there's a segment that is really, really good, where after Paul gives the amazing unicorn story of his best-selling book, The Shack, he offers some really profound insight, not just on the emptiness of success, but also how God might use that emptiness to create even more transformation in us. When I wrote The Shack, and I tell people these two things, and the first one I already said, and that is 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. And that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. You know, all the rest of this is for me, God's sense of humor. I tell people <laughs> it's, it's proof that God can still speak through Balaam's ass. You know, that's, <laughs> that's sort of my, my, yes. if you knew my whole story, that would totally make sense. And then yeah. the other thing I say, you know what? Everything that mattered to me, matters to me, was in place before I wrote the book. You know, because if, mm. if this kind of thing had happened in my 30s or whatever, when I was still all just a mess, which I couldn't have written it then, but if something like that had happened, it would have destroyed me and I'd have destroyed all my relationships al- along with it. Well, but, yeah. but by the time I turned 50, I'd done enough work where the book didn't give me identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny community or love. Um, mm-hmm. And it hasn't added any of that to me. What it, what it gave to us, um, me and my family and my friends and the ripple effect, it gave us a wide open invitation to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. Oh, that's and, fantastic. Oh, it's unbelievable. Well, and, and I totally so agree. Beautiful. I totally agree because that kind of success, which is it is so rare, but that kind of success can absolutely destroy a soul. I mean, I, uh, that's, I'm so glad that you were at a place where you were able to not, you know, get tied up in the worth of it. I think it was the comedian, Russell Brand. I don't know if you know that guy. He's kind of a trip, but he's out there, but he, he, uh, said he had a line that stuck with me. He said, anyone who's had, you know, amazing success happen, 
they have to learn how to make friends with the emptiness of it. And mm. I just thought, wow, that's wisdom there. That because you, I think everybody until they have that that kind of success thinks, oh, that would be awesome. It's going to be great. You know what? It's actually empty. It doesn't do anything for you. But not many if people, you've, in especially the, if you've been looking for it to do something for you, <laughs> right? You, you and then know, it really and then will it kill doesn't you. deliver. You know, no. and uh, but I wasn't looking for it. I was actually at a place in my life where I was absolutely content and we had nothing but I, I was at a place where i was comfortable inside my own skin i had no secrets no addictions i was finally the same person in every situation and and joy had become a constant companion rather than an occasional acquaintance and finally i got to be the child you know for the first time in my life so uh. so many things were in place before i wrote it and i'm grateful you know success as defined by the world is 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 a different kind of pressure than than suffering and loss uh, you know it's and I, I and i think this is important um i think success will bring more crap out of people than failure ever would and part of that is because if you take an empty like water bottle and you crush it to get the air out of it that's like you know abandonment and and sexual abuse and poverty and and war, it's just, it just crushes you. But success and notoriety and platform is like pushing air into the bottle, expanding it from the inside. And that will reveal flaws in the bottle that crushing never would. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I think in a lot of people's lives, it is quote unquote success that has been the catalyst for transformation um, in ways that loss couldn't have done. And, um, so, yeah. yeah. So I think God is behind success sometimes just in order to get at get at our stuff. Boy, Paul said so many things in this segment that really resonated with me and, and struck up a chord inside of me. And, you know, what he said was that the success of the shack, and we're talking about not just any kind of success. And I'm, I'm telling you folks, as a, as a writer, the shack really was a unicorn or a wildfire. It just exploded, and it's so rare. Here's a weird little stat. 95% of all Christian books don't get to a second printing. That's, that's an amazing and <laughs> very discouraging stat for people who are writers in that you, you, you spend all this time you know, investing in a, uh, this book that you write, and then it maybe sells a few thousand copies. Maybe it doesn't. You know, your, your family and friends buy them, like Paul said. But sometimes a hit happens. And then sometimes a hit like The Shack happens, 22 million copies. And what I found so fascinating about Paul in, the, in, in his narrative, because I didn't know this story coming into it, was that he said that he, if he had written The Shack when he was 30 or 40, it would have ruined him. And, and notice he said, uh, you know, he couldn't have written it then for, for certain reasons, but that he got to a place and it was really through his own brokenness and that place of sort of abject humility when you get to that place. And you know, he said something too about that joy had been his constant companion. And so that when the shack had the success that it did, he said, you know, that allowed me and his family and friends and so forth, to, to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. What a great phrase. And, you know, as I've gotten to know Paul, that is really true. The, the brother just does not seem too concerned about 
anything. I mean, he, he, he was here at the Apprentice Conference, uh, the gathering, and he just shared, you know, confessed some of his own brokenness. And I, I, he just doesn't care. I mean, and not like he's cavalier. It's just that he's gotten to a point where he's like, hey, you know, I, here's my, I'm broken, you're broken. None of this really matters. God loves us. And I just really thought that was interesting. And when he talked about how that success uh, will dig out more of the junk, you know, than failure does. I mean, that's so counterintuitive, you know, because we, and, and he talked about how suffering does kind of crush us, right? But that success, and he put it this way, reveals our flaws. And in a sense, success can be a kind of catalyst for transformation that suffering or failure or loss can't. I just, I think it stood with me and, and for so long afterwards because I've been in the, the world of, of publishing and public ministry, and I know some of those temptations to, to invest in, you know, the success of things like how many copies does a book sell and uh, uh, where is it, what's your Amazon rank and what are the reviews saying and what is this and that. And so I, I know how easy it is to get caught up in that machine. It was just so refreshing to hear Paul just go, yeah, I'm kind of beyond that. I don't really care. <laughs> it just, and it seemed so authentic that it really didn't. And then for me, it just, it reminded me that, that truth that, it, and, and that is that we think certain things will make us happy. They don't, they don't, it doesn't matter for a little time, you know, it, it's great reviews and book sales. Yeah, it brings you, but at the end of the day, that's not what matters. What really matters is that you were true to your craft, you wrote something authentic and true, and it helps other people. And I'm so grateful, and I'm speaking now to many of you who are listening, who have read my books, used them in your churches and groups, and, and let me know how it's been helpful to you, help shift narratives and lead you into practices. And the other day I got a lovely card from a guy who said that, that going through the, the Good and Beautiful series uh, helped him really believe that Jesus loves him, and that's been the best thing he's ever received. And so that's, I think, what Paul means by walking on the holy ground of other people's lives. And I'm just grateful that I get to do that. The next guest that I want to take an excerpt from is A.J. Swoboda. A.J. is discussing his book, Subversive Sabbath. It's such a good book, and it won Christianity Today's Spiritual Formation Book of the Year. A.J. in this segment uh, shows us how obeying the Sabbath commandment is not just about rest, but about reclaiming Jesus as Lord of our whole lives. Take a listen. Boy, yeah. Um, great question. And uh, I, I've, this, this is a story that I've, I've, I've kind of told a, a couple of times in, in different contexts, but it really was the beginning, the, uh, the, the, the genesis of this book was a number of years ago when as a college age pastor, I went through um, my own uh, burnout experience as it were of working 80 hours a week. And uh, on a Saturday morning, just sitting down and um, basically quitting ministry and saying, I'm done to telling my wife, I'm fit. If this is ministry, I'm finished. And I uh, took my little flip phone, which we used to have back then 15 years ago. And I broke it over my, my knee and I threw it up against the wall and I said, if this is ministry, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with that. And it was, uh, I had become, you know, but one of my favorite uh, quips is from uh, Will Willimon. I had become a quivering mass of availability. I had become everything to everybody 
but God. Uh, I was available to everyone but God. And uh, by God's sheer sovereign grace, at the time was reading a book by Eugene Peterson. I believe it was under under the unpredictable plant and what she talks about the Sabbath day. I think it was that or it was working the angles. It was one of the two. And I read about how Peterson would keep this day of Sabbath. He would take a day and he'd go up in the mountains with his wife. They'd eat a lunch and he would read a psalm and that it was a completely unremarkable day. There was nothing that he could journal about. It was just enjoying God. Mm. And I started to be intrigued by this. And I, I, it took a long time, but we started to, to practice it. And I knew uh, about five years ago that this book needed to be written when, after we had planted the church in Portland that we recently transitioned out of, and I moved into full-time uh, academic work, but that this church that we had planted um, five years in got really tired, which is natural for church plant. Church planting is really hard. And so I decided to do what every pastor does when there's a problem in the church. I did a sermon series um, <laughs> on on rest. And I preached for three weeks on the Sabbath, and I preached on uh, a lot of things that have upset a lot of people. I preached on uh, preached a sermon on marijuana once. I preached. I lived in Portland. Had to talk about it. We lived. Preached a church sermons on sexuality, on on politics. So I preached sermons that upset people. And I preached for three weeks on the Sabbath. And I don't think we ever had more people leave the church. Um, there was this. <laughs> wow. It was shocking how offensive this idea was to really, um, aff, really affluent white um, urbanites in Portland. And the elders got together, they said, we, we should talk about this. And I remember it was a Sunday afternoon and we were sitting around with the elders talking about the Sabbath. And I brought up the Ten Commandments and I had this epiphany. This was the moment I knew I, I wanted to write the book. <clears throat> I had this epiphany that if you take the Ten Commandments, right, and you, as a pastor, if I was to break nine of these commandments, uh, if I, you know, if I started stealing money from the church, I'd probably lose my job. If I committed adultery, I'd probably lose my job. If I murdered somebody, I would definitely lose my job. And it dawned on me, this is one of the worst, epiph darkest epiphanies I've ever had, that if I uh, don't take a day of rest uh, as a pastor, I'll probably get a raise. Mm. Um, it, and it dawned on me for the very first time that this has become the one commandment that the American church actually celebrates breaking. Mm. And that was, the mo that was the impetus, that moment. It was a culmination of my own burnout experience. And that experience of seeing that with the Ten Commandments and preaching in our church. And it has just become clearer and clearer and clearer to me that this commandment, it is not a mistake that it is the only commandment in the Ten that begins with the word remember. It's, a, it's like God knew what he was doing. Um, <laughs> because of the Ten, this is the one that we are most likely to forget. Yeah, and, and, and I, I love the phrase you use in the book, which is Sabbath amnesia which mm. is, is uh, that's what happens is that we, I mean, it's a, it's a great way of putting it because, you know, amnesia is like, you, you can't really remember that that is mm. there. And, and then as I think about Sabbath keeping, it, I think if you ask most people who have maybe tried to memorize the Ten Commandments, which I did a long time ago, but <laughs> I think if you say, hey, can you name the Ten Commandments? And people are like, yeah, there's a bunch of do nots, thou shalt nots, and that yeah. sort of thing. But it's like, uh, even if you know that remember the Sabbath and keep it holy is, is in that list, we do forget. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and, and, I, and I think and that, if I ahead. can add to that, just and the, the almost immediate pushback among at least the circles that I run in, the, the kind of evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal world that I run in is, well, 
the Sabbath is just part of the law, which we're, we're freed from. Well, that in, in many respects, I understand the point that one makes. But even if you make that argument, the Sabbath in Genesis 1 and 2 comes way before the law was ever given. It's literally built into creation. And if, if we don't do it, creation begins to die. An atheist needs a day of rest as much as a Christian does. Um, we were created to need to breathe in the same way we were created to need a day of rest. Yeah, and when you put it that way, uh, that that shifts it, doesn't it? Because I think there is, well, I guess I have to keep it because it's in the Big Ten. Like, as I said, it's in the Ten Commandments. But as you're saying, I mean, it's it's right there in the Genesis story that not only does the, do the humans rest, but God rests. So yes. it's it's built into the fabric of the nature of the human person. And I think about, uh, I mean, the comparison for me, AJ, is that is that I know that I need a certain number of hours of sleep. And just about every study that's ever been done, and there's tons, because we're kind of obsessed with our health here in America, but is, you know, how much sleep should I get? And there's all these theories. Well, it's somewhere between seven and eight and a half or something like that, mm. maybe as much as nine. But we know that if we don't get it, uh, our bodies will suffer. Mm-hmm. I mean, right, yeah. as you say, that's yeah. like woven into the fabric of creation. In the same sense, I think what you're saying, and this is a question ultimately, what you're saying is, is that woven into the fabric of the human body and the nature of how the human person works, we also have to have this one day set apart where what we might call as work, which would be, I think, getting ahead, you know, doing things that, that advance something, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that, that we're called to do that. Is that what you're saying? I mean, that is the unavoidable reality of the nature of our bodies and Absolutely. our souls. Yeah, it's, it is telling to me that we never say that people work like the Messiah. Uh, the phrase is always people work like the devil. There's, uh, uh, <laughs> you had G- me there for a second. I'm going, yeah, <laughs> I got it now. Good. Um, the, 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 in, in the, in the story of the Bible, um, the, the irony of the devil in the Bible, the, the, the forces of evil, the irony in the Bible is that God knows how to rest, but the demonic doesn't. Um, mm. so for example, when Jesus cast out of that woman, the spirits, and he says, uh, in in Matthew's gospel, that the spirits run through arid places looking for a place to rest. Uh, in the Bible, the demonic forces never know how to stop. God knows how to stop. In fact, so much so that when God creates the world on day seven, he rests. And when God comes back to the world in the person of Jesus and recreates the world, the kingdom takes the seventh day and rests in a tomb on day seven. That, and the point is that whenever God wants to get something done, uh, he takes a day off. The, and the, what's built into the Bible, I think, here is that God's rest is always more effective than human work. And that God can accomplish in rest what humans can never accomplish in all their work. To take a day of rest every week from our work is a signpost in our schedule. It is a signpost in our calendar that Jesus Christ is actually Lord over all things. Um, when, and, but the, and that, my friend, is terrifying. The, the mm. idea that Jesus is actually Lord of my work and my rest. And by the way, in Mark's gospel, Jesus says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath and he's the Lord of the harvest. 
And the point is that he is the Lord of our rest and our work, not just our rest, not just our work. It is that he's the Lord of both. I love the image of Moses going on the top of the mountain when he, he goes up right after the, he, he receives the Sabbath commandment. I mean, he receives the Ten Commandments and brings them down to God's people. And all of God's people are worshiping a golden calf. Now, that, by the way, is that story is why most pastors and most Christian leaders never take sabbaticals, um, is we're absolutely terrified of what's going to happen when we're gone. The real fear is when we come back down the mountain, right, everybody's still going to be worshiping God, and we're going to realize that we're not as important as we thought we were. Um, when I think about Sabbath, what it does to me is it crucifies my self-centered notions uh, that my work is doing God's work. And I'm partnering with God. I'm a co-laborer with God. We all are. But it is the work of Christ, the sovereign work of God, that is so that is truly effective. It is not my work that accomplishes uh, the, the fullness of the kingdom. It is God's work that's establishing the kingdom. And so I get to stop and let the king be the king. And that crucifies all of our narcissism. It crucifies all of our self-centeredness. Um, it displaces us. It's extraordinarily painful to Sabbath to recognize that you are not the Lord of the universe. Gosh, listening to that again just reminds me of the depths of what he he is saying, and he has lived into this practice of Sabbath and really understands it at a deep level. I, I loved how he shared that uh, he got to that point as a as a pastor that he was, as he put it, a quivering mass of availability. I mean, that's that's a great turn of phrase, but you know, and, and it speaks so much of our culture now, right? We, we with our screens, and we're just so available, and there's there's good to that. But the downside is, is in some ways, we can never get to a place where we can be alone or in real solitude or rest, and certainly not Sabbath. I thought it was also fascinating that he, he, he talked about he gave three sermons on the Sabbath, and nothing was more controversial in his congregation than those three sermons. And he mentioned he touched on taboo subjects, very challenging and difficult subjects, and people went, oh, yeah, that was interesting. Pastor Swoboda spoke about that, but he steps up and says, you know, Sabbath is not just a good idea. It's in the Big Ten. It's a commandment, and it's important, and that got pushback, and that teaches us something really deep about where we are, and oh my gosh, his, his, his dark epiphany, as he called it, that, that uh, when he realized that if he broke nine of the Ten Commandments, he would probably get fired. Certainly the, the clear ones like stealing and adultery and, you know, murder, you know, thou shalt not kill. But he said, and his, his epiphany was, but I realized if, there were, if one of the commandments, if I never broke it or never kept it, excuse me, if I never kept it, which would be the Sabbath commandment, I'd get a raise. Oh my. I mean, that was like a pow and when he said that. And I thought that is so true because we look to people in ministry and we think, we want you to just burn out. We want you to give everything and be constantly available for me 24-7, 12 months out of the year. I want you constantly and, and that we reward it. We, we'll, we'll let a pastor get a big raise. And, and that certainly rang true in my own experience. Um, 
uh, from from what I've seen in in people in ministry, and it's it's a it's a huge challenge, and it gets right at the heart. I loved also how he said, of all the commandments, the the command the Sabbath commandment is the only one where God says, "Remember the Sabbath." The only one that that that, that word remember. It's not like, "Hey, and remember, uh, don't lie." It's like, you know, "Hey, remember, don't kill anybody." No. It's the only one, this is, and remember the Sabbath. And AJ's point was, it's because we have amnesia. We forget. And I think it's a part of this culture of, of drivenness. And, and then we talked about how the Sabbath actually comes before the law. So in one sense, Sabbath is, is, isn't just a, a, a one of the Ten Commandments. It's woven into creation, as he said. And that's why, what a great line he said, even atheists need the Sabbath. Because it's, it's woven into our very being. You know, this conversation uh, not only, you know, piqued my interest or my thought or stuck with me, it actually really changed my own behavior. Because after this episode, I felt absolutely convicted, in a good way convicted, that I needed to strengthen my own Sabbath keeping. It's, it's something that I was a little bit lax on, if I'm going to be honest. It's what everything he said is true. There were... You know, some some weeks I'd kind of go, oh, I think I didn't remember to keep the Sabbath. So I just got, I got more strict with it. I got, not in a bad way, cause, but you have to put boundaries and be committed. And I did. And, um, you know, I couldn't make my family, like, demand um, that they all do that. But I slowly started take, taking, you know, certain practices and making them a regular part of my Sabbath keeping. And I found that my family actually really liked it. And in fact, Megan would sometimes come home and see the candles lit and, you know, that Sabbath had begun and she would like, oh, this is great. And same with, uh, with my daughter, Hope. And so um, it's, it's, it was, I really love that episode on many levels, but, uh, but not the least of which, because it actually really prompted me to be more um, intent uh, on in keeping Sabbath for myself. Just loved it. Our last excerpt comes from Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. Natasha is a former Marine Corps captain, and she is a current doctoral student at North Park Theological Seminary and the only speaker to have ever received a standing ovation at the Apprentice Gathering. Kind of cool. Natasha challenges us in this segment through the story of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt to recognize their unique potential in bringing about Racial Justice Through the Power of God. Well, I want to quote again from page 73. Uh, You write, My strongest conviction toward advocacy is that God wants people to live freely. This conviction has put me on a path to pursue uh, racial justice. And then a couple of sentences down, you write this, and this is what I want your comment on. You write, I don't expect significant movement on this spectrum from any person who doesn't claim to know Christ. Now, I, I, I think I understand that, but I want you to hear, I want to hear you explain, like, that's a big sentence. And, and how did you arrive at that, uh, at that conclusion? Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because if I'm honest, I see how hard it is for the people who claim to know Christ to move. 
There we you go. Slow. We slow <laughs> in our actions towards justice. <laughs> we, like, we, you know what I'm right. saying? It's like, I'm like, do we really believe the things we say? We believe because I like if we believe it, we seem like we should respond differently. Um, but I also just look at it, you know, I'm very logical. I was I was having um <laughs> we were having family dinner last night and we were talking about this coronavirus and my daughter who's 12 almost 13 um she, you know i'm i'm just kind of giving my position on it and she was like mom what not everyone's logical thinking like that <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> and so i'm a very logical thinking uh thinker and i don't think people um, when there's a perception, again, it's a false narrative, but it is a, a perception can feel very real to people. Um, if there's a perception that if I give up something, if the playing if the playing field is level, then I'm going to lose. Very few people would take the L. Very few, hmm. right? Because most people, like if it's going to be between me and you. Now I've been trained in Marine Corps. If it's me and you in the street. And it's you and me, you know, fighting for the last meal. Like, I'm probably going to pick me and my family and my kids <laughs> every time, right. every single time. And the only reason I would share at all or take a little bit of an L is because Christ has compelled me to do that. It's not in our fallen nature to do that at all. And that's why right. I made the statement that I made. Well, I love it. And I totally agree with it. And, you know, this podcast is built on Colossians 3, where Paul says, um, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above. But then later in Colossians 3, he said, um, in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, uh, circumcised, uncircumcised, uh, male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. And, you know, as I study the scriptures, particularly Paul's epistles, this was a shocking thing, this idea that Christ is in all of us, and that's the the bond of our unity. And when I think about the early church and, and just the, the church at Colossae that I'm re- referencing, Paul's writing this letter to them, and they were a mixed group of people. There were people who were slaves, and and slavery was a little different, perhaps, than what we might think of with it, but it was a reality. So when he says there's in Christ there's no slave or free, uh, Jew nor Greek, I mean, huge differences. Mm -hmm. And there they were as a part of the body of Christ together, and Paul's just reminding them, the only reason we're connected is that we are one in Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he doesn't hearken back to Genesis 1. He could have, and it would have been mm-hmm. great, but in he could have said, we're all made in God's image. But he says, we, you know, Christ is all and is in all. So when I read your statement um, about I don't expect significant movement on this spectrum from any person who doesn't claim to know Christ, that makes sense to me. But I appreciated your honesty in saying we're supposed to be better than we are. Um <laughs> Please help us, Lord. Please have help us, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have help mercy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because oh. that's a first century document, right? And here we are Mm-mm-mm. 20 centuries later going, help us, Lord. Yeah. So help it's us. where we're, it's the reality in which we live, un- unfortunately. But we're having this conversation and that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And you've written um, a beautiful book. And let me just ask this, too, because uh, 
the driving image of the book is um, the story of Moses and the deliverance of the people um, of Israel from Egyptian captivity. Uh, Tell our listeners why you chose that as the as the driving image that you have throughout the book, and you do it so beautifully in weaving in that narrative. But talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a part of our um, Black church tradition, really. Uh, you know, I was raised in a Black church, um, in the Black church, um, whatever we, however we define that. Um, and, uh, you know, there's this, always been this reality. Even, you know, people sometimes forget that the civil rights movement was first, I would say first, a, a Christian movement. I mean, these were people that were motivated by and large by their faith to take action. And so um, such is the case with, you know, our people who uh, were enslaved and brought to this country, um, regardless of, you know, what some of the narratives are and what people tell you that uh, Christianity did not start in Europe. It's not a white man's religion, right? It's an Eastern <laughs> book, um, the Bible is. And these are people that were from the, the East, including um, some of the first African believers. And so um, the people that were brought here and enslaved, um, those who made it, who did not die on the journey or um, Lord forbid, kill themselves on the journey, um, or their children because they didn't uh, want them to have a life of literally hell on earth. Um, those who made it here, uh, generations of them, hundreds of years were born and died in slavery. And they did that, most of them, with a hope that God would deliver. And um, that hope of God being a deliverer uh, was largely grounded in the text of the Exodus narrative. That in the same way that God delivered the Israelites from their enslavement in Egypt for 400 years, that God surely is able, is how the Black people say, he is able to do it, um, and he will um, do it. And so there's this hope and expectation, even in the midst of the the horror and uh, the trauma um, and the violence that was slavery, that God would deliver. And so... Um, when you think about that Moses and the Exodus narrative, it was never just about Moses and Moses just being a great leader, which is how a lot of my um, um, teaching, uh, you know, I received, you know, basically from an individualized Western context. Um, but it's really what God was doing on behalf of a people and how he was gathering the people to shape and form those, that, those people um, into the people that he wanted them to be. Not the people they were because they were stiff naked people, but the people that he wanted them to be. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, this idea that even in the midst of our wilderness, even in the midst of our struggle, in the, even in the midst of our suffering, that God is using that, um, that he has, um, not to say that he necessarily ordained it, but he He allowed it and, um, and, it's for, and the purpose in it um, has to be, according to Paul, for our good. And, and the good is not just that it feels good, it looks good right now. We continue in Romans 8, 29. You know, he says that it is for our good um, that we are purpose and crafted into the image of Jesus. Hmm. 
And so what I believe and what I've seen, if I look at American history, that is Black history, and the Black contributions to America and the contributions of the Black church and Black people to this country, is that, uh, you know, we as a people have a great deal to offer, um, a richness to offer, and being faithful to God, not because we have been triumphant and powerful and had the most money and had the most things, but because we have seen that God has proven himself to be faithful and a miracle worker. Um, throughout our history, and we still stand in, in spite of everything that we've um, experienced and been through. And so, when I look at my personal journey, um, I see the faithfulness and the hand of God on my life. I'm very, and so even though I've, I've been through a lot of hard things, a lot of hard things, um, that I I'm still here. I'm still standing, and um, and. I know that's because of the grace of God and, and that God has been present and near to me um, on, on the journey. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that historically, right? That, that within your own, the tradition that you grew up in, that's the story of Moses and the people of Israel um, and, and their longing for liberation. Um, it, its cultural context is there. Yes. So this is a section uh, called Stand Up to Pharaoh. And so, um, again, I was teaching about this a couple of weeks ago of, you know, the, the conversation that Moses is having with Pharaoh amongst the Israelites and the Egyptians is really who's God. That's what's happening here. So when God is sending these plagues, he's trying to move Pharaoh to action to submission, really, to saying, like, I am God, you are not, because in this ancient time, Pharaoh was perceived as divine. And so we know that, that he's not, because like the rest of us human, he he dies, right? 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 And so we have we have a living God. And so, um, so this is what uh, I was just, you know, compelled to kind of look at this narrative, like, who is God in the midst of this wilderness, and his desire to set and liberate people? And how has that shown up for Black people in America? And so the title of the section is Stand Up to Pharaoh. When people of color cry out for justice, they are crying out to God for freedom. We do this for our own sake and for each other. It is also an opportunity for white people to see the error of the distorted message that has been perpetuated throughout history. It is a challenge to change the narrative, to tell the truth. When the people of God collectively say Black Lives Matter, it is a prophetic lament, a cry to God to deliver, execute justice, and be a defense. God sent the Israelites a savior. By the time Moses brought the message of deliverance to Pharaoh, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 430 years. God heard their groans and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Because of his concern, God sent Moses to deliver a clear message to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Can you hear the cries of God's people throughout history? Through blood and white supremacy, let my people go. Through frogs and slavery, let my people go. Through gnats and black coats, let my people go. Through flies and sharecropping, let my people go. Through death of livestock and lynching, let my people go. Through boils and Jim Crow segregation, let my people go. Through hell and voter suppression, let my people go. Through locusts and racism, let my people go. Through darkness and the war on drugs, let my people go. Through the death of your firstborn and mass incarceration, let my people go. Slavery, slavery, 
in all of its forms must cease. Go down, Moses, way down to Egypt land and tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Well, she said so many uh, incredible things. And one of the things I loved about about how she answered my question about how, how is it different as Christians? Like, how do we look at an issue like race differently as a Christian? And I quoted from Colossians 3. That's kind of the, the, the favorite chapter of this podcast, and where, where in Christ there is no longer uh, Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. And this radical thing that Christ is all and is in all. But I loved her answer, and I didn't see it coming when she said, uh, and I, she put it so well, that because of Christ, um, I can take the L, meaning that I can take the lower spot, I can take the loss, I can, I can take that because of Christ. In other words, when I'm in a situation of that kind of confrontation, because of Christ, I have a different posture. And I thought that was just so good, that idea that, you know, and she talked about, look, because Christ is in all of us uh, as Christians, we say that a lot, right, on this podcast, I'm, I'm one in whom Christ dwells and delights. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be better in, in the sense that uh, when we face a situation, we ought to be more attentive. And, you know, the, people can construe this as, um, you know, particularly... Uh, political. It, it isn't at all. I mean, the fact that this conversation uh, took place and aired before what happened this summer with George Floyd and the protests and all that has happened and, and quickly divided our country politically. But to me, I mean, what she said was incredibly relevant before all that and still is and, and maintains. I think it's, as a Christian, I feel convicted to recognize that as a white man, and now a 58-year-old white man, and I've, I've lived a life of a kind of privilege. And so when Natasha tells certain stories, if you go back and listen to the conversation entirely, she tells just really difficult stories of things that happened to her that would never have happened to me. And um, to me as a Christ follower, it makes me think about um, my posture, my attitude, um, and how my silence in many ways is saying something, you know, my, my inability to step into that. And I'm grateful for Natasha and grateful that we have this podcast as a medium to advance her message and, and encourage people to read her incredible book. And then, of course, the ending, which that's how she ended her talk at the Apprentice Gathering. And it led to, you know, Natasha was the only um, person at the Apprentice Gathering that ever got a standing ovation at the end of their talk. So that segment where she, she, she does the let my people go, you know, to, with that rhythm of and then dropping in the, some of the history of racism as examples like locusts and frogs and plagues and things like that. It was just beautifully done rhetorically. You know, as a writer or speaker, I was just moved by how her eloquence and ability to use language to craft that together. But that's what great writers and speakers can do. They, 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 they move us, you know, just like Martin Luther King Jr. could put words and phrases together and, and touch a place within us and, and, and help us to recognize a reality that may have been hard to hear. And I think that's why that whole conversation, but particularly this excerpt, 
really stuck, stuck out and just went, oh, wow. And I just kept thinking on it. Well, I hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode. I know I did, just, just to be able to go back and listen to these conversations that meant so much to me, that really uh, challenged me in, in good ways to think more. And, and I hope if you're interested that you will go back and listen to the whole conversation and listen to all the conversations because there was so much, so much in so many of them. And you know what? Guess what's coming up? Season three will be starting on August 5th. The first episode will air, and I'm excited for the guests that we have lined up. I'm excited for what's going to happen in, in season three. And I'm, I want to say thank you to all of you who listen faithfully. I get feedback, and it's just so moving and, and makes the, the hard work that it is, because it, it is pretty hard work, as you can imagine, uh, that not only I do, but Jacob does, and a, a team of people that help, uh, that are on the sidelines doing some work with us. It's a lot, but it's certainly absolutely worth it when we hear feedback from you. So keep that feedback coming, and, uh, and we, we do listen to it. So blessings on you, and uh, I'll look forward to connecting with you as season three begins on August 5th.